Father, you are the creator of heaven and earth. There is no one like you. You are the eternal one. You have existed from the beginning. You are Yahweh, the uncaused one. You are the great I am. And we come before you humbled to be in your presence, humbled to have your word, and humbled to get to be able to gather and sing praises to you and to think on your work of salvation for us. We pray, God, as we gather now, as a lot of churches across the city gather now, that you would be honored across the churches in our city. We pray that the gospel would be preached across the churches in our city and people would not be pointed to their own goodness or to their own efforts or to their own works, but people would be pointed to Jesus Christ. We pray, that, we pray for that to happen right now as we turn to your word, that you would give us the eyes to see Christ, that you would work by your spirit to give us a right view of you and a right view of self. We pray that you would work by your spirit to take the truths that some of us will hear from this text that we know, like the back of our hands, but we pray by your spirit you would make them deep and real and you would drill them down into the very core of our being so that we are transformed and filled with fresh love and affection for you. We pray for those here that are maybe wrestling with who you are, maybe are discouraged in life, that you would give them the joy, hope, and revelation of Jesus Christ. Pray ultimately that you would build each person up in Christ through this time in your word. We pray it for your glory. We pray it for our good and for our transformation. In Christ's name, amen. We are starting a, uh, a new series called uh, Deeper, and it's kind of, this is our theme for, for 2017 of what does it look like for us to go deeper uh, as a church in a couple key areas? What does it look like for us to go deeper first in this, in the area of our walk with Jesus? What does it look like for us to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus? How do we go deeper in the gospel? How do we go deeper in the gospel? Before we jump into that, I want you to think about this question. What has most defined you over the last two to three weeks? What has most defined you over the last two to three weeks? What has been the anchoring center for your sense of self, your purpose, your life? What has been the, the sun, the thing that your life has orbited around over the last couple of weeks? Right, since this has been the holidays, I'm guessing that center for you has been either friends or family. Right? Uh, all your activities, this common blood, this common last name, or this common friendship is so central to you over the last couple of weeks, right, that you've been forced to travel long distances to be with people and to eat with them and to sit down and to eat with them again and to sit with them again, right? It's probably been family. It's probably been the people that you've spent time with over these holidays. That has been the anchoring center, I would guess, over the last couple of weeks. And that's the power of a centered identity of an anchor. It transforms and it dictates everything about you. When you think about family, there's people in your family that you don't like. Am I, am I right? So get an amen there, right? There's people in your family you don't like. There's people in your family that are hard to get along with. There's people in your family that are crazy. And yet every year around this, around late December, what do you do? You pay money to fly. You spend time to drive through inclement weather, right, to go and to be with those people, right? And that's the power of an identity. 
right? There's family. Think of family. Like, you have family that, man, they have hurt you. You have siblings that used to beat the snot out of you, and you still love them. It's the power of a centering identity, common blood, common name, common family, or common friendship. That's the power of a centering identity. Now, in this series of going, uh, about, about going deeper in our walk with Jesus, this, this first aspect of going deeper is about being centered on something. It's about being centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That just as family and that notion defined so much about us, Jesus is calling us to now be defined and to center our very lives around the good news of what he's accomplished. And in fact, this idea of uh, gospel-centered believers, when we talk about what does it mean to be gospel people, this is really part of what that looks like, is that a person is a gospel person is deeply centered. Their life revolves around not what they do, but the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for them. Their whole life orbits around the truth of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Think about it like this. Everything about their life is flavored with the truth and reality of the gospel. And the reason why this is so important is because the fundamental problem in our church is really the fundamental problem of every church, is that we have not waded deep enough into the waters of the gospel. We have not had the good news of Jesus pressed deeply into our hearts the way that it needs to be or even the way that we want it to be. The fundamental need of our church is to go deeper into the waters of the gospel. Now, some of you might be thinking, ah, yeah, I, yes, I agree, but I, I feel like I know the gospel and I feel like I'm grasping that and Here's the tricky part. You can know the facts of the gospel and yet not live with the freedom of the gospel. You can know the story of the gospel yet not live with the joy of the gospel. So if you know this intellectually, that doesn't really matter. Is this operational in your heart level? Is your life centered upon the good news of Jesus? That is the question for us. So what we're going to look at is we're going to look at a very simple yet beautiful passage that lays out not what we have done, but what Christ has done for us so that we can unpack what does it look like to be centered upon the gospel. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Galatians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, we preached it, I think, a, a couple falls ago. And in this letter, what he's doing is he's really defending and explaining the gospel. This, this church, the church of Galatia has, has trusted Jesus, and yet they've started to wander from the gospel into a mix of gospel and uh, self-righteousness. So Jesus saves us and justifies us, but also what I do saves me and justifies me before God. My performance plus a little bit of Jesus equals God being uh, pleased and, and, uh, and right and good with me. And Paul writes to them to say, no way! None of you, zero of you, all of Jesus equals acceptance before God. And here he lays out part of the beauty of the gospel. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Three identity markers as a result of the gospel in this text that we're going to look at. We're going to look at our redemption. So we are redeemed. This is our identity, our redemption. We're also going to see our adoption. We are sons. This is the identity through which we experience God. So you have redemption. This is our identity. And you have adoption. We are sons. This is the identity through which we experience God. And then our inheritance. We are heirs. This is the identity through which a gospel-centered person views their future. Okay, so we have redemption, adoption, and inheritance. Three components, three implications, three results of the gospel. Three things that flow downriver because of the gospel. Now, a fun question to ask when you go to churches or when you even talk with pastors or Christians is to ask this question, well, what is the gospel? Use the word talked about all the time. It's used throughout the New Testament. What is it? I remember uh, being on a um, college campus, I was doing college ministry while I was a student in college, um, and asking somebody, we should go and just share the gospel with people walking around when we were like 18, 20, we're just like, we're just going to go up to people and talk to them about Jesus. And uh, just that boldness that you have when Jesus is new and fresh to you, the stuff that most of us would never, <laughs> it's like our worst nightmare now, right? It's like, go watch that person, tell them about Jesus. We're like, I'd rather jump in front of a car, right? But this is what we did when we were 18, 19, and Jesus was just new, fresh in everything to us. So I remember going up to somebody and being like, yo, man, and I knew this guy from the gym. I was like, yo, do you know what the gospel is? That was always be our first question to just start the conversation with the gospel. Is. Oh, yeah, I know what the gospel is. I was like, what is it? Oh, I was lying. <laughs> I was like, dude, you just lied to me. And I asked, well, what is it? He's like, yeah, I didn't want to talk about it. Well, what is it? He's like, oh, it's the music, right? Like Kirk Franklin? I was like, oh, yes, but not what I had in mind, right? So this question, what is the gospel? Right? If we ask, ask that even within the church, you get a bunch of different answers. That's okay, but it has to have a couple elements in it. It's defined clearly biblically. And if your gospel definition does not have Jesus, the cross, and substitution, then it's not really the gospel. You can look at 1 Corinthians uh, 15 for this. So the gospel is good news. It's news that is heralded. The gospel is finished work. It's a declaration of a historic event and act. So the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his ascension as our substitutionary sacrifice. That he stepped into our place to do something, to atone for us, for all who trust in him, to restore us to God now and eternally. It's the gospel. Now the implications of the gospel are vast. Through the gospel, Jesus has defeated death. Through the gospel, Jesus has defeated Satan. Through the gospel, the kingdom of God is going to come in full. Through the gospel, the world is going to be renewed. Through the gospel, for all who trust in Jesus, their body aches and back pains will one day be gone because they'll have a glorified body. The implications of the gospel are vast, but the definition of the gospel is actually pretty narrow. It has to have Jesus, it has to have the cross, it has to have his life, it has to have his resurrection, and it has to have him as a substitute. Some people think the good news of the gospel is, well, Jesus lived a perfect life. Well, that's not good news. What about me? I haven't lived a perfect life. So substitution has to be part of that gospel. So one of the implications of the gospel that Paul is going to show us here is this first marker of our identity. The first marker of a person who is centered on the gospel is that they understand this is who I am. And it's this, our redemption. 
our redemption. Look at verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God did something. What I love about these three verses is it has very little to do with what we have done and very much to do with what God has done. It's not with the fullness. When the fullness of time, you woke up and got smart. Is that what we hear, see here? When the fullness of time came, you decided to be a better person. When the fullness of time came, you became more devoted to Jesus. No, when the fullness of time came, God did something for us. And what did he do? He sent his son. He sent Jesus Christ to come and achieve something for you and I that we could never achieve ourselves. Look at this. He was born of a woman. Jesus leaves heaven, enters into human history, born into human history, fully God, fully man, born under the law to do what? To prove how great he is? to show that he's the best, to come and be treated as a king, to come and crush his enemies, to come and judge the world? No. To redeem. This is good. This is good. He came to redeem us. He came to buy us back. Look at this planning by God. Look at the the thoughtfulness, the purpose, the intention, the love driving God the Father and God the Son. When the fullness of time came, the Father sent the Son to come and to redeem you. This is incredible. And this is the first marker of the identity of someone who believes the gospel, is that their identity first isn't even the fact that they're a sinner. That was true of them and is true. But the qualifying identity marker before the fact that we are sinners is that through Christ we are redeemed. So when you think of yourself, you don't think of yourself as, I'm just a sinner, I'm this. Yes, you are, but you are first before that. You are a redeemed sinner. The fullness of time has come. Jesus has showed up. Jesus has redeemed you. So the first marker of your identity is that you are redeemed. And look at what Jesus has done. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the what? Under the what? Under the law, right? So Jesus comes under something to redeem us uh, from under that very thing, right? Think Think of a building with rubble being, and we're under it. We're crushed by something. Jesus himself comes under that to come and get us out, set us free, heal us, mend us, and redeem us. And he's born under the law. This is a theme throughout Galatians, and it's this idea It's this idea of God's law, God's commands, God's holy standards of being so weighty, so out of our reach that it it really crushes us so that we would then look up and cry out and say, God, my only hope is mercy. And so Jesus comes under the perfect standard of God, and he's not crushed by it. Actually, he fulfills it, and as he does that, he reaches down and grabs us from under the curse of the law, under the penalty of the law, under the weight of God's commands, which we could not keep, and he lifts us up and redeems us. He buys us back from the penalty of the law. He buys us back from the curse of sin. He sets us free. We're redeemed. This is the fundamental identity of anyone and everyone who trusts in the work of Jesus Christ. The law is this x-ray to expose us and show us our brokenness. And Jesus comes and redeems us and heals us by forgiving us. 
So now we're no longer under the condemnation of God's law. Even as we sin now and grieve God by our sin, that condemnation is, is not on us. It's already upon Jesus. Even as we sin into the future, that, that penalty is not upon us. Jesus has already paid it all upon the cross. We are free. He lived under the law, fulfilled it perfectly, and now that perfect record is given to us. We are redeemed, set free from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 says it like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Substitution. Now I want to ask you this. How much, is you, how much of your fundamental identity revolves around the fact that Jesus Christ has redeemed you? How much of your fundamental view of self revolves around the truth of this text that God purposed, and he did it. He sent Jesus to redeem you. How much does that flavor your view of yourself? How much does that shape how you think about yourself? Or does your fundamental identity instead seem to drift in orbit around what you do, good or bad? Or does your fundamental identity seem to drift an orbit around what people think of you, good or bad? Or what you accomplish, good or bad? Or how your day's gone, good or bad? Or what this season of life is like, good or bad? Or whether you're a good Christian or a bad Christian or a good spouse or a bad spouse or a, a beautiful person or an ugly person, right? How much, how much does your identity revolve around the fact that Jesus himself gave his body to redeem you? See, a, a person who is seeking to be centered upon the gospel, they center them li their lives, their identity, their view of themselves on the fact of their redemption. But God doesn't stop at our redemption. The gospel doesn't stop with our redemption. The gospel also brings us into God's family. We also have our adoption. And this is the identity through which we experience God. So think of redemption as the mirror in which we see ourselves, right? This is the identity in which we think of ourselves uh, often. And adoption is also that, but it's also in this text very much the way that we experience God. It's the identity through which we experience God. Think about it like this. <clears throat> you have somebody who is your... Uh, is your is like your teacher. Let's say you run into your teacher at the grocery store if you're um, in a class somewhere. Uh, it can be an odd encounter because you're so used to experiencing them through the identity of a student, right? So you're used to experiencing them in a the classroom and, and there's an authority dynamic there. Then you run to the grocery store and they try to give you a high five or something. You're like, whoa, you're my teacher. Teachers don't high five, right? Or, or something like this. I'm making this up. This is more applicable if, you're, if, you, if you were all were sixth graders, okay? Uh, so, so just roll with it, right? But it's a, a power dynamic. I'll give you an example. My, my, I have a, my former landlord was also my friend. And my identity through experiencing so much at first was through landlord. And so when we started to become friends, I'm experiencing him through a new identity, right? Through, through the identity of a friend. And so it was a bit of an adjustment. And God wants us to experience him not through the identity of, I'm just this sinner, I'm just this sinner, but through the identity of the fact that we're redeemed and we're also adopted. So look at the, the next portion of the text. Why does Jesus redeem us? What is the purpose for which he redeems us? 
Well, if we look at this text, we see it plain as day, right? This is the benefit of reading scripture slowly or even underlining um, kind of linking, uh, linking words to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. So Jesus redeems us, not just to redeem us, but so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is also very good news. I want you to understand what what the Apostle Paul is is showing us here, is that we're not only redeemed from the penalty of sin, but God actually goes further. He could redeem us and forgive us, which would be incredible and amazing and undeserved gift, and then he could just wipe his hands and be done with us. But God chooses not to do that. He doesn't just want to give us the status of forgiven, he wants to give us the status of family. He doesn't just clean our slate through the blood of Christ, as incredible as that is, he actually wants us to come into his home. He doesn't just reconcile our our differences, he actually wants us to come be on the couch and stay with him and be near to us. This is what adoption means. We would praise God into eternity if the implications of the gospel simply stopped at our forgiveness. He'd be worthy of all of our devotion. And yet he takes it a step further by bringing us into his family as sons. You might be wondering, why does it say sons and not sons and daughters? Well, in the first century, guess who was the only one who got the inheritance? The sons. So Paul is saying, is saying, ladies, you get an inheritance too. He's elevating the status of of women by by using the term sons for, for men and women here. We're all heirs in the family of God. So through the gospel, we are reconciled to God. We're no longer estranged from God, but through Christ, we become forgiven children of God. Now, you might ask this, well, what what difference does this really make? What difference does this make for me on a Monday? Well, this actually makes all the difference. This is actually, adoption is actually the litmus test to see how much we really understand the gospel. Is how much does this flavor the way that we live? Listen, Listen to this quote from uh, J.I. Packer, uh, a great old uh, Anglican theologian. He says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child, of having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook of life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying this is so fundamental to what Jesus has done for us. This is so fundamental to what God the Father uh, has done to lavish his love on us that our grasp of our adoption is the measuring stick to show how much we really understand Christianity itself. Now, if you're like, well, this means I know nothing about Christianity, don't be discouraged. Because do you, know, do you know what this means? If you understand adoption very little, it means you have so much more to enjoy and to go. So, so don't be discouraged by this. It means we have so much more to enjoy. But this means that Christ makes our adoption the new basis for our experience with God. And this is why the text says, uh, through adoption as sons, he's put his spirit into our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit within us by which we cry, Abba, Father. This is a whole new experience. Apart from the gospel, we don't cry, God, cry out to God, Abba, Father. Apart from him bringing us into his family, we don't, we don't do that, right? Do you go up to someone who's not your dad and say, Dada? 
right? You, it would be a very strange encounter, wouldn't it? Right? Try that this week, sermon application. So go up to someone who's not your father, say, Daddy, and just see what kind of just look they give you, right? That's not how that operates. But because of the gospel, we actually come to God, not primarily as our judge, not primarily uh, he is our Lord. All of those things are true, but we now come to him in a new way. Everything is flavored by the fact that he's our father. So we cry out to him. We pray to him in a new way. We enjoy him in a new way. We experience him in a new way. So the question is this, how much of your life and your identity is centered around this aspect of the gospel, that God views you as his child. You're not even first a servant of God. You're first a child of God. God first isn't concerned with what you will do for him, but is first concerned about what he has done for you. God isn't first concerned about you achieving things for him, but is first concerned about enjoying you as his child. This changes everything. This means that when you pray, instead of having this nagging thought, I'm not praying right. Isn't it funny? Every time we pray, even if we pray different, we're always like, well, this isn't right. You ever, you ever feel that? You're like, I'm praying on my knees. Maybe I should be praying standing up. I'm praying standing up. Maybe I should be praying on my knees. I'm doing, praying with my eyes open. Maybe, right? We always have this nagging thought of whatever I'm doing is actually not really right. See, but if we understand the gospel and that God is our father, we understand that like a father with a child, he is just delighted to hear from us. God loves, in Christ, God loves your prayers. To you, they most, may be the most worthless words that you've ever uttered, but to God, they're precious jewels because you're his child through the work of Jesus. I want to give you an illustration about this. My son, Adrian, is going through speech therapy right now. So he's, he's struggled to talk, mostly because his older brother talks for him and for everyone. So he's struggled to speak. And now he's, he's started to speak. He's made really great strides over the last couple of months. But he speaks in such a way that really only his mother and I can understand most of what he says. So C's are like D's. So come is dumb, right? So he says things like that. We understand what he's saying. And I love to hear my boy talk. I love it. To other people, it's gibberish. But I love to hear him speak. Why? Because he's my son. He comes up and slaps me in the face for no reason. I'm angry for a couple seconds, and then he says, dumb, 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 and I'm delighted. It was because he's my son. I love to hear him speak. To anybody else, it's gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. It's confusing. They can't decipher it. I can't decipher it half the time, but half the time I do, and I love it. Why? He is my child. Do you understand the Father's love over your prayers? He absolutely loves to hear you pray. They're jewels to him. Now, you only understand this if you understand what Christ has done. So the reason you don't pray is not because you don't know what to do, is because you don't think it's worth it and you don't think God really cares, but he loves your prayers. That's what Paul is showing us here. So our identity through which we experience God, we've got to understand God is our Father through the work of Christ. This changes everything. This means now when you go through a trial, whether it's a hard stretch with your kids, whether it's a hard stretch at work, whether it's a hard stretch in your marriage, hard stretch in your relationship, hard stretch of a breakup, just a stretch of life where you're like, everything is going the opposite of what I would like. This means you understand God as being involved in that stretch of your life, not as just somebody who's pressing the button, hey, let's see how they react to this, but as your father. So now you look at your trials and you can say, well, this is not what I planned. This is hard. This is difficult. But God is my father. He's with me. 
He's my father. He gave his son for me. Somehow he's going to carry me through. Somehow he has good within this. I don't see it, but he's my father. Let me lean on him. It changes everything. So let the truth that God is your father flavor every aspect of your life. One of the things that is a part of this text that is really brief, um, the, the, the aspect of prayer, crying out, Abba, Father. Paul is showing us that prayer itself is even a gift of the cross, that, that through the cross we are restored to God, so now we can come to him as Father. So when you pray, remember that somebody paid the price for your prayers, and that person was Jesus. Jesus' blood, the gospel, paid the price so that we can pray to God as Father. So center your identity and your experience of God on the fact that you are his child, on the fact of your adoption. Our inheritance. We are heirs. One of my favorite movies from the 80s is uh, Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Anyone see that movie? See that one person? A couple people? All right, good, good, good. My wife won't watch movies older than 1990. It's so funny. She'll just look at This is old. It's like, this is like 25 years ago. Calm down. You're older than this movie. She's like, I won't watch it. It's like, gosh, come on. So one of my favorite older movies is Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. And one of the reasons I like this movie is because it, it has just, uh, it's the theme of reversal. And so Eddie Murphy is a criminal, poor criminal. Dan Aykroyd, I think, is like a rich stockbroker. And basically something happens, so they trade places, which is why the movie is called Trading Places. They switch and they reverse roles. And, and what's, what's interesting about it is through the whole movie, you just see Eddie Murphy now experiencing life as a rich man, and you see Dan Aykroyd experiencing life as a poor man, and you get this great, huge reversal. It's funny, makes for easy jokes, and it's fascinating. With this last aspect of our identity, inheritance, we are heirs, right? This is showing us that there is, on multiple levels, right, across multiple levels, there is a great reversal for us in the gospel. That the gospel, in many ways, is a spiritual rags to riches. Not by mistake, but by God's love and design. We are heirs. So the gospel radically reverses our identity, our position, and our future. With the first aspect of redemption, we saw that the gospel radically uh, reverses our identity. That we are no longer simply sinners, but we are redeemed. Now our experience of God, we don't just experience God fearfully, we now experience him as father. And now our future, future we don't just experience uncertain, but we know that we have a glorious future as heirs uh, to the kingdom of God. We go from enemy God to a child of God and heir through God. Verse 7, look at what the Apostle Paul writes here. Look at the, look at the, um, the evolution, the, the linking thoughts here in 7. So you are no longer a slave right? We're no longer trapped under idols. We're no longer enslaved to our sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, how silly would it be to be an heir, to, to be someone who's going to inherit, inherit something? How silly would it be to be an heir to something incredible and not have it impact your life in the present? Right? How, how silly would it be to have a great inheritance and never think about it. How silly would it be to have a great inheritance and not even know what it is? And yet, isn't this what most of us do? That we have this promise, so we're heirs. We're co- the Bible says we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And yet, how often do we think about this reality and do we even know what that means? We are heirs with Christ. And then, then we wonder 
Why do we have very little joy about the future? It's because we're confused. I don't know about you, I don't get excited about things that I'm confused about, right? Because they could be bad, right? So, so we need clarity on what this means. And you know what we'll find? We'll find God put a lot of joy into our lives when we understand what does this mean that we are heirs with Christ, heirs as sons and daughters. Well, we're heirs in, in many different ways throughout Scripture. We're heirs to eternal life. We're going to share in glory with Jesus. We're heirs to the riches of heaven. But there's a specific aspect of being an heir in Galatians. And uh, Paul is speaking of a specific thing. And the question is, do you, do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? And does it flavor your identity, your view of self, your view of your future? Paul, Paul says this, Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So we're going to inherit something. It's tied to Abraham, one of the great uh, pillars of the faith in Genesis 12. And we're heirs to something not through our works, but through a promise. We're going to inherit something not through what we've done, but through believing in a promise, which is the gospel. Now, we've got to trace Abraham's story to get this. Uh, think, think with me here. We see Abraham in Genesis 12. God promises to Abraham he's going to make him the father of many what? Bible trivia. Many Many nations, right? And through him, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, right? Great job. Um, so this blessing, no, seriously, great job. This, is, this blessing is ultimately going to come through Christ and come through, through Jesus because salvation is going to come through Jesus and all the families of the earth, all the nations are going to be represented in, the, in eternity. God's salvation goes to all nations, not just one nation, all ethne, all peoples, all nations, nationalities, going to go through Abraham's seed, which is Christ, Christ's work is the reason why Abraham's promise is, is true, the reason why he's the father of many nations. And Paul says that we are going to receive inheritance of this promise just like Abraham, that we are going to be blessed just like Abraham. And here is the specific inheritance that Paul is speaking about that we share with Abraham. And this is, this is it here. This is, is going to sound strange because you maybe have never thought about it. But Paul tells Abraham, or Paul writes of Abraham and says, Abraham is an heir to the world, an heir to the world. He's going to inherit the world. And Paul here, I think, is speaking about the fact that through Christ, all who trust in Christ are heirs to the world, that your inheritance is the world. And to quote Scarface, the world and everything in it, Chico, right? We're, inherit, we're going to inherit the world. Now, Let's admit, that sounds a little strange, right? That, that sounds a, a little bit weird. What, what, does, what, does, what does that mean? Well, think about this. Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he says, the, the meek shall inherit the what? The earth. Well, what do we think Jesus is talking about? The meek shall inherit the earth. Before that, the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus is making this connection. The humble, those who repent, turn from their sins, trust in him, our inheritance in the age to come is not just eternal life, but the world renewed. Paul says we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is going to reign and rule from the right hand of the Father, and we're going to share in that reign and rule. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 says this, let no one boast in men. Well, why? It says, for all things belong to you, the world and things present to come, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. 
You hear it there. Revelation 3, 21 says this, Jesus speaking to the church at Laodicea, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you you hear it? Jesus is saying, you're going to sit with me and rule over everything. You're going to be in my cabinet and exercise authority over the new heavens and new earth. You're going to reign and rule over a perfect world, and I'm going to have you right by my side. That's a pretty incredible inheritance. That's a pretty royal position that God the Father is going to bestow on his creatures. I don't know much rulers that take uh, the most incompetent people around and, and give them position of power. Or maybe I, maybe I do. <laughs> but this is what the Father says he's going to do. This is what the Father says he's going to do for us. He is going to give us the world as our inheritance. We will sit with Christ on his throne, all who have turned from their sin, trusted in him, and will exercise rule over the world in the age to come. And do you know what this brings us back to? You know what God is doing here? He's bringing us back to the Garden of Eden, when humanity was meant to rule over the earth in close intimacy with him. He's bringing us back to that. Even though we ruined it all along the way by our sin, he's bringing us back to that. You're an heir to eternal life through Jesus, but also to the world because of Christ. Now, the question is this, what difference does this make on a Monday morning? What difference does this aspect of your identity in the gospel make on a Monday morning, tomorrow morning? Well, let me ask you this. What percentage of your time is occupied by thoughts of your future? (laughs) Yeah. What percentage of your time is occupied by achieving things, by planning for something to come? A lot, and it should be, otherwise (laughs) your life is not going to go very far, right? But I want you to understand this. Your purpose and your future, because of this aspect of the gospel, does not primarily hinge on your identity, but on the future Jesus has secured for you. Your future through God's Son is that as an heir to the world. And if you understand this, if you center your life around Christ's work in this particular way, when you have a hard stretch in your life, you'll find God giving you resolve and joy because you know that down the line, your future is good. The fact that you're an heir with Christ actually gives you resolve to follow Jesus when people will ridicule you for doing so. You'll say, one day, I know that I'm going to receive glory with Jesus. I'm going to receive glory with my Savior. I can endure hardship now because of the glory that comes later. Now, if you're on the other end of that, or uh, without that perspective, well, I'm trying to endure with Jesus, and I (laughs) I hope this works out in the end. Good luck. right? It's like trying to run a marathon, and you don't know where the finish line is or if there is a finish line at all. But Jesus says, no, there is a finish line, and listen, at the finish line is glory, and you get to have it. Now, that's good. That's what we're promised in the gospel. So when you center your life on the work of Jesus, not your activity, you begin to be filled with hope because you see your future. You begin to experience God with intimacy because you understand your adoption, and your view of self changes from focusing on your successes and your failures to focusing on Jesus because you're redeemed. This is what happens when a person is centered on the gospel. So my charge to you is center your life on the work of Jesus. Center your life on the work of Jesus. 
Don't center it on what you do. Don't center it on how you fail. Don't center it on how you succeed. Don't center it on what people think of you. Don't center it on what you look like. Don't center it on how you're doing well in blank area of your life. Center your life on the work of Jesus Christ. When you do that, you'll be filled with spiritual power, joy, and fullness of the Spirit of God. And here's how you do this. I want to give you one quick application, and I'm going to wrap up, and we'll stand and sing as a way to warm our bodies. Center your life on the good news of Jesus by centering your day on the good news of Jesus. Life is a succession of days, right? So we can make this great thing. I'm going to center my life on the gospel, right? But what about tomorrow, right? So center your life on the gospel by centering your day on the gospel. And here's how you're going to do this. This is going to change your life. You guys ready? It's a life coach, Claude, okay? Your first thoughts in the morning bring to Jesus Christ. So this is what this means. Do not read your email or the news first thing in the morning. You are centering your life on chaos, activity, and a fallen world. Center your life. Let the first thing that comes into your consciousness when you wake up be Jesus Christ. And not what you need to do for Jesus. Let it be what Jesus has already done for you. I really mean that. I have seen the effects in my own life of doing that and not doing that. Center your day on Jesus by taking your first thoughts and bringing them to the truth of the gospel and who you are in Christ. If you do that 40% of the time in 2017, you will go deeper with Jesus than you have ever gone before. Start your thoughts, your consciousness, your day with the good news of what God has done for you. And you'll have armor to take all the bad news of what's happening in the fallen world and all the people in your inbox who need something from you. Start with the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel-centered believer strives to first begin with Jesus and who they are in him and then to face everything else out of that identity. I see the difference in how I interact with my kids when I do this, how I interact with my wife, how I deal with obstacles. My inbox or my to-do list or my problems could be the same. But when I start with who I am in Christ... I'm no longer striving to fulfill a need within myself when I face everything else. Now a criticism is just a criticism. It's not an indictment on me, right? It changes everything. So that's my challenge to you. I'm going to post a prayer that you can pray um, that could help you do this or remind yourself of the gospel. And the second application to do this is to center your uh, life on the gospel by centering your day on the gospel. The second way to do this is to feed your soul every day. Feed your soul every day with God's word. That's why we're doing CBR. CBR is a way, the community Bible reading plan, is a way for you to center your life on the gospel every single day by turning to God's word. Jesus, you know what he says about our spiritual need in Matthew 4, 4, that we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Jesus' minds, the reason, if you don't take in the word of God daily, you have no reason to expect any type of flourishing or enjoyment in your spiritual life. 